Good morning, church. Welcome, welcome to El Paso Bible Church. It is good to see you guys. Looking forward to our time together as we worship God, pray together. We're encouraged by the teaching of God's word. Just going off of our bulletin here, um, there is a VBS volunteer meeting June the 25th at 10 a.m. And I presume it's here at the church. Oh, do want to say happy Father's Day to us fathers in the room. Um, and on the same theme of VBS, um, well, VBS is coming up July 11th through July 15th. There's a lot of logistics involved, so I encourage you to pray for that. Pray that everything would go smoothly. Um, j just think about it. We will be reaching, a lot of these kids will be hearing the gospel for the first time. So pray that we would be clear, we would be effective in sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with them, and that they would come to faith in him. Um, I was also asked to uh, remind you guys that there is a, a sign-up sheet for a list of supplies in the lobby. And uh, we also have flyers out there so you could share the word with your neighbors, any family members that have children. Where did that noise come from? Did you guys hear that? Was that, that just me? All right, so uh, I'll be reading Romans chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning for your love and your grace and, and the opportunity we have to come together as a body, as a church, to worship you. And we, we ask that they, that may be the case. Encourage us through the teaching of your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, church?
Well, good morning. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Fathers, grandfathers, and great. Are we at great grandfathers yet? We got great grandfathers? No? Nobody yet? We're working on it. Um, I want to clarify something for people, uh, and that is that everybody has expectations on certain days like this. And I fail to meet them on a regular basis. It's because I have chosen to do so because I was born recently, but not yesterday. And uh, I didn't do a Mother's Day sermon. Y'all remember that, right? I made note of it. I said, I'm not doing a Mother's Day sermon today. 
And I told you then, it was a promise, it was a covenant even, that I would not do a Father's Day sermon because I wasn't born yesterday, right? We, we treat people evenly as much as we can. Um, and I have a method to my madness when I do that, and I'll explain that if you want to learn some other day about that. Um, but one of the main reasons that I don't do it regularly is because people have ingrown, inborn associations with those kinds of sermons, right? On Mother's Day, mothers are great, mothers are awesome, mothers are such an abundant blessing. And on Father's Day, you guys are not doing very good. You need to shape up and cut the crap out. Yes? That's not how I roll, right? Guys, y'all are doing a great job. We had uh, 40-something. Jacob, how many people did we have at the men's breakfast yesterday? 40-something guys at the men's breakfast yesterday. Guys, y'all love the Lord and you're doing a great job. So happy Father's Day to you. That's the sermon for the Father's Day, okay? Y'all are doing great. Remember the lessons that your father taught you. And everybody's father teaches them lessons. Regardless if they were very good at it or not, they taught you lessons. One of the lessons that my dad taught me uh, that has made me get through life to this point was to go to work. (laughs) And so I'm going to go to work today. This is what I do. Y'all know I do a lot of other things, but this is what we do. So I'm going to do that. We're going to stay in the Bible, verse by verse. We're going to continue on. So with that in mind, children, remember to wish your dad happy Father's Day, but go on to children's church, okay? It's that time. There they go. All right. You can tell it's a little bit summertime now. We've got people out of town for various reasons and all that, but um, it's nice that we have recordings and video available and all that, so people can stay up. But we're going to continue on uh, here today, um, if for no other reason that I'm going to honor my dad today and the lessons that he taught me. He would have been uh, 66 this last March. Uh, he passed away a couple of years, a few years, three years ago now. Um, but uh, pound for pound, the, the density of the lessons that I took away from his life have made a world of difference in mine. So we're going to continue to follow that this morning. So God is just. God is just. Y'all remember that part? God is just in his determination. He's just in his judgments. Uh, he's just when he determines in, his, in the exercise of his divine discernment, and that's what judgment really is. You guys may need to back up a little bit on your definition of what judgment is, right? Talking about fathers, right? Your father wants you to exercise good judgment. Has has your dad ever said that to you? You need to exercise good judgment, right? He's not telling you that you need to go out and find a wicked person to slay. Usually, I mean mostly. Occasionally, that needs to be done, right? Some wicked people need to be slain uh, but normally he's asking you not to speed, right, <laughs> or something like that. You need to exercise good judgment. That's, he's saying you need to exercise wise discernment, and that's what judgment is, and that's what most of the time when, God, when Scripture says that God is exercising judgment, most of the time it is not the exercise of his wrath, but it is the exercise of his design, divine discernment and making a decision about what's best for his children. That's what it is here. So he, he, he has deemed it worthy in our lives as his children to experience afflictions, to experience persecutions, to have troubles in life, because that is an opportunity to be counted worthy of the kingdom. We talked about that already to some degree. 
He's just when he does that. He's just. I can say that and I don't have to qualify it. I don't have to answer objections to it. I'm not given that prerogative. God is just when he does that. Uh, he is just, right, when he does that. It's the same thing. It's a little bit different perspective, but back when we did James, remember walking wisely, how to live your life wisely was the main idea in James. But it begins, and he says, let, let endurance have its perfect result, right? This is familiar. Let endurance have its perfect result. If it's not familiar, go back to James sometime. Not right now. Let endurance have its perfect result, that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what James is saying is there is that if you never experience any trials, you're not going to know how to face trials. If you don't face any afflictions wisely, then you're not going to know how to face afflictions. You need to experience them so that you are prepared to meet them. Do they ever cease? Church, they never cease. So if you can look to your future and know that there are things coming down the pike, what's the best thing? To prepare for them. To know that life is like James has this world in view. He says, you need to, the idea is that you're going to be prepared for the things that are coming to you in your life. Here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul's perspective is different. He's saying, you are going to be counted worthy of the kingdom that is to come. The one that is coming to this earth with GPS coordinates that are already established from which Jesus will rule from the throne of his father David. We're not the kingdom. Unless I miss, like, we, don't, we don't build moats around our churches anymore. Right? Battlements? No. When we have people that we don't want to come visit, we lift the, the gate. Like the medieval castle. They used to build churches kind of like that. Because they misunderstood their role. We don't build our churches into fortresses anymore because we're not the kingdom. That's not who we are. Now, the kingdom is coming. Jesus is bringing it. You want to be counted worthy of it, of honor in that place. And that's what that term is here. Worthy of recognition. Of reward. Of honor, of position. Or appearance, we might even say. It's future. God is just when he sets that system up. We don't get to argue. God is also just in his judgment when he judges those who have afflicted his children. Paul made that clear as well. He's just when he does that. He's just, the, the word is a weird word. Anto. Antipodidomy. Didomy means to give, right? Anta means to put it back in its place. Vengeance. God is just when he brings vengeance on those who have afflicted his children. He's just when he does that. And he says that there is eternal destruction as a consequence for that away from God's presence, away from his glory. And there's a cost that will be paid because it's just. And it'll be paid knowingly. Uh, verse 10 tells us that that will be in the same day, right? Uh, verse 10 says it will be on that same day that we're not just seeing God's glory or Jesus' glory in a, in a general sense, but when he will be glorified in his saints, in his saints on that day. 
What does that mean? Because you know that God is glorious, right? He's always been glorious. He tells Moses that. You can't see my glory, bruh. <laughs> you will die if you see me. Let me put you in the cleft of the rock and you can see me wisping by at the end, right? You can see my glory as it fades, but you can't see his glory and survive. Moses. Moses was a friend, right? We talked about this in Sunday school recently, that God talked to Moses as if he was a friend. And even he couldn't tolerate his full glory. God is glorious. It won't be when we acknowledge that. It will be when he is glorified in his, in his saints. Now, I understand that in, in the book of 2 Thessalonians to refer to a time that we refer to as the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, which is when we stand before Christ to receive a reward from him for our faithfulness. Glory. Scripture uses kind of words like that. When Scripture says something like, an elder who rules well is worthy of double honor, he doesn't mean two pats on the back, does he? They paid their elders, and he said it's worthy of double if, the one, if he works hard at preaching and teaching. That's how that worked. The elders who rule well will receive the crown of glory, a reward, a recognition. Right? There are five different crowns, at least, measured, mentioned in Scripture. Take it to be when there is honor is received. And it will be on that day when God is glorified in His saints, when they are recognized and given the position that they have been counted worthy of. God is going to be glorified in us because being, glorifying us glorifies Him. That's a review. My my wife mentioned that I should talk more about this marveling business. We didn't talk about the marveling business because I got a little long. But here in in the end, it says here in verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. We didn't talk a lot about the marveling, did we? Thalmazo. We shocked when that happened. There's going to be some surprises, good number of surprises. In that day when God is glorified in his saints, uh, people that we thought were all, you know, they're all mighty in the Lord because they had 40,000 followers on their social media account or more, I don't even know, maybe there's a few zeros missing, some of these people. But now we figured out that Twitter is mostly bots, right? So... Who knows if those are real numbers? I wouldn't pay $44 billion for a bunch of extra false zeros, would you? I think that's wise. We don't know. We think that there are a lot of people that are mighty in the Lord because their ministries appear impressive to us. Sometimes it's smoke and mirrors. Sometimes it, it, they really spent way too much on their video system, and it's not as much as even it looks like. A bunch of pastors who wrote a bunch of books and preached thousands of sermons to thousands of people over decades may take a back seat. Probably will take a back seat to their grandmother or grandmothers who paid, prayed for them every day from the time they were small children. Or their mothers, if you have a mother who prayed for you. 
people who serve faithfully in their church. The standard is going to be marvelous. And no one is not going to marvel at it. Everyone who believes, everyone who is present is going to marvel at the gracious standard that God applies when he recognizes the faithful and is glorified in his saints. Some people get really intimidated when we talk about that sort of thing. I get a little intimidated. (laughs) You're going to measure my accomplishments? I got a big long list of my failures if you want to see those, but I don't keep a list of my accomplishments. But my list doesn't matter. You know what else doesn't matter? Your list of my accomplishments. (laughs) Or my list of yours. The thing that we're going to marvel at is Jesus' assessment when he is glorified in his saints. His justice is marvelous. His rewards are just, but they are not measured according to the standard that we would use. It is a far more gracious standard than we would ever think of. And he values things that we find it nearly impossible to value. Humility. Do you value humility? You value a little humility. You don't value humility the way God does. Doing the long paper on Philippians 2 for my PhD class. It's ending in a couple of weeks. (laughs) I am running more ragged than a squirrel in a nut factory right now. Trying to get this paper done. But it says that Jesus was, he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He humbled himself taking the form of a bondservant, becoming obedient. Even obedience to death, death on a cross. That's his humility. Anybody got Christ-like humility? When I was a young man, somebody did a, a very, very detailed job of what a death on a cross was like. It was an exhibition of his humility. The proof of it. You value a little humility. God is just and gracious. But because God is just, and Paul understands uh, that he's, he's not a commie, right? He doesn't, give, he doesn't redistribute other people's rewards to them, to people that didn't earn them. He gives rewards to people who have earned them. And we need to talk one more time, because I do this every time we talk about rewards, is that eternal life is not a reward. Eternal life is not a reward. It is not a prize. It is not a wage. Eternal life is what? A gift. It was paid for. It was purchased by Christ in toto, in its entirety, paid in full. The life that we receive simply by grace through faith in Christ provides us with opportunity so that God maintains his justice and he is not unjust so that he would forget, as if he would forget our work, Hebrews 6.10 tells us. It gives us the opportunity then to live a life that has meaning. Aren't you happy about that? I'm, I'm 
One of the men, aren't you scared to death? I'm not scared to death. Don't, don't be scared to death. One of men's major apprehensions in life is to die and not being able to tell what significance they have. All the men got stock still, stone-faced. I know it to be true. Because in my line of work, I sit with people who are dying imminently. And you know what we talk about? The things that matter. What mattered? What matters in your life, Pastor? What matters in my life? And, And did I do enough? The fact that in his graciousness, Christ gives us life and gives us purpose so that we could be counted worthy of the kingdom by obedience and that his gracious standard is going to determine how much glory he sets in each of us to glorify himself in his justice is like nothing else. Because every other religion in the world has you striving, slaving, crashing down to your knees and falling flat on your face in obeisance just in the hope that you could possibly have some modicum of the life that Jesus offers you freely. Some form of it, but they have you strive your entire life to try to earn what Christ gives you because he earned it in your place and simply ask that you believe him for it. So don't put up any... (laughs) Other people, we just all worship the same God. Y'all are just one of three monotheistic religions that are in the world. No. Jesus doesn't leave that option open to us. The way, the truth, the life. But because of his justice, And the opportunity that we have in this life, Paul desires for this church, specifically by extension the church, I I think that's reasonable, to be counted worthy of the things that matter, to be counted worthy of those marvelous rewards. And that's what he says here in verse 11, to this end, for this purpose, we pray for you always. Now, you'll read some foolishness in some commentaries that this is talking about trying to get the Thessalonians saved. How many letters does it take to the Thessalonians for you to understand and for me to understand and for those dummies writing those commentaries to understand that these are saints? They are believers. They are justified people. They are the local church, and it doesn't matter who else reads the thing. It's not addressed to them. For the believers at Thessalonica who have eternal life that cannot be lost, who are now living the life that they have in Jesus Christ on task, on purpose, he prays for them because this isn't a given in their life. Because in the face of afflictions and persecutions, we are tempted to falter, aren't we? Someone who hadn't seen me in a couple of years recently saw me. So you got old. Yeah, I think a lot of pastors got old the last two or three years. You're tempted to falter, aren't you? Paul prays always for them, for this purpose. 
To this purpose, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. And this is where those commentaries make the mistake. What does that mean in the context when you say it to a believer? There is a sense in which the gospel calls to the unbeliever. It is an invitation. But how would you say that? How would you say that? In the beekeeping world, we have all these folks that are famous now. Half of them are lawyers and doctors and other stuff, and they say when you, and now they're famous beekeepers, right? And people come to them and say, what happened? I found my calling. It's an expensive way to do it. Go to law school or med school to find out you want to keep bees. But we're happy when they say that, right? You found your fulfilling, appropriate vocation. That's what that means. We found our calling. We found the thing that I am fulfilled in doing in my life. I hope that you have found vocationally a career that does that for you. That's how the Bible uses it, especially for believers. God has given you an appropriate, fulfilling vocation in your life. He has not only called you to it, He has chosen you for it, which is very, very, very often what election refers to in the Bible. He has chosen this for you. Romans tells us that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What does that mean? That means that there is a standard by which God judges you. And how you have used your gifts to engage your calling, faithfully or not. Because the gifts and the calling don't change. Whether you obey them or not changes. Isn't that nice? You don't like it. Because you're an American. And you think you can just do whatever you want. You think, uh, you, you operate on the Sesame Street principle. I guarantee it. Many of y'all probably don't even ever watch Sesame Street, but Sesame Street always taught me that I could be anything I wanted. That was a lie. I can't be anything I want, not even humanly speaking. Not even humanly speaking. I'm too short to play basketball for reals. I never even tried to dance ballet because I know I can't do it. I have sprained my left ankle 27 times. I'm lucky to be able to even walk. I can't be anything that I want to be. But you know, a bunch of Americans are floating around trying to hit a moving target, not paying attention to the calling and vocation, the appropriate fulfilling vocation that God has given them and how they can fulfill that in their activities on a daily basis. Maybe that's the key. Stop it with the moving target business, right? Isabel can hit almost anything, but I guarantee you that with an air rifle, it's hard to hit the moving target, right? Don't you just try hard not to move at all, really? Yeah. If the target moves, it becomes virtually impossible to hit it. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They don't change. The target is static. And there's a sense in which it is 
the same for all of us. We'll talk about that in a minute. But people get confused by this, right? Because they don't understand what calling is. Because I, I grew up Baptist, and we only sang two songs at the end of the service. Actually, no, excuse me, three. Oh, how he loves you and me. Anybody? Huh? Just as I am, and Jesus is calling. Some of, we sang one of them twice in a month because there was only the three. Don't sing Jesus is calling necessarily at your invitation for people to trust in Jesus, in my opinion, because most of the time it's talking about your vocation as a believer. But that's where the commentaries get off base here and think that this is talking about, well, we really need to get those Thessalonians saved. We really do. They're doing great. But if they would just be believers in Jesus Christ, then they, they, could, they could go to heaven and it would be even that much better. Scripture does not get the cart before the horse like that. We talked about this, right? Unbelievers are not commended like believers are, nor are they commanded like believers are. The Thessalonians cannot be unbelievers because they have walked faithfully before God. Can an unbeliever do that? Can they grow in their faith? No. Because they don't have any. These are simple things. Shows you that you don't have to be real sharp to get a book published. Even a commentary. Most of the Bible is not focused on you. Principle number one. Most of the Bible is not about trying to get you to heaven when you die. Principle number two. That will help you a lot in reading the Bible. It's not about the topic of getting me or anyone else to heaven when we die. Most of the New Testament, especially the letters, are about how to walk faithfully with the Lord in this life says, we want you to be counted worthy of your calling. We want you to achieve what the opportunity presents. The opportunity presents that you will have honor and recognition in the kingdom. And we're praying for you always that you would be counted worthy of that. And God has called his children to a vocation. Now, you want, you want me to tell you whether you're supposed to sell cars or mattresses or restaurant supplies, I'm not going to do that. Whether you're supposed to start a business or whether you're supposed to do that, that's not your vocation. That's details. That's details. Uh, one of the articles I read uh, very early on at Dallas Seminary, now a long time ago, <laughs> long time ago, it seems like. It's like a lifetime almost. <laughs> So for some of y'all, it is a lifetime, because one of them sitting right here. It was his lifetime ago. I read an article called, Does God Care About the Super Bowl? The, the answer was no. He doesn't. He cares about what his children do to win the Super Bowl. He cares about what his children glory after they win the Super Bowl. He doesn't really care about the Super Bowl. And he doesn't care for the most part. I think there are some notable exceptions. For the most part, he does not care what you do to eat and pay your bills while you are engaging in the vocation and calling that he has called you to do. 
Now, speaking from experience as a pastor, I think that that is one exception. Because it's not a gift to a person, it's a gift of a person to a church. And I think they're, but in general, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And he wants you to engage in this vocation. And it's for the church, it's one that all of us have. And that is to endure in this world. We're not guaranteed political power, so that's not going to help us. Y'all did know that, right? You don't, you're not guaranteed political power. It doesn't matter. As uh, one of my favorite movies is The Patriot with Mel Gibson. Y'all remember that? It's, old, it's an old movie now, because I'm, remember I got old. Last, just happened in the last three years. And he stands there and he's arguing, right? His character is arguing about whether they should vote a levy to declare war on the British Empire. He says, why should I trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away? A legislature can trample the rights of a man just as a king can. And he's right. Yes? Can a legislature trample your rights? I'm not talking about ours necessarily, but there are legislatures all over the world. I could point out, it's no guarantee. You don't have political power. You're not guaranteed of it anyway. There's no command here to resist affliction or to resist persecution. There is, this comes up a lot from people um, who see my piece of hardware here. You know, and they say, oh, you're, where in the Bible am I commanded to shoot people that are persecuting you, me? I'm not. If somebody comes in here with a gun pointed to my head and says, deny Jesus Christ, I'll die. You know that that's not why all the crazies go into churches and shoot them up, right? Yes? Y'all remember Sutherland Springs? That guy, that nutter was just upset at his mother-in-law and shot 26 people because he had a family problem. There's a whole lot of reasons that aren't Jesus that people come and do violence. Plus, there's the issue of never being commanded to lay somebody else's life down, right? I'm, I, can, I, I am commanded by Christ to take up my cross to die, to lay my life down for my wife. I'm never commanded to lay somebody else's life down for them. So no, it's not incongruent that I do what I do. So I don't accept criticism on that basis. That's not very popular, is it, either? People think that you have an obligation to accept their criticism. You don't. You don't. Certainly not obligated to modify your behavior simply because they, you are being criticized for it. 
Y'all know that I have a, a hearing impairment. A, a pretty severe tinnitus all the time, probably why I talk so loud. I was told by somebody who also had a hearing impairment, which was not complete deafness, that I could not refer to a level of what I have as hearing impairment because it insults deaf people. That's what I was told. I, I had to block her on every social media account I had because she was going after me so much. I have the hearing impairment. I have a hearing impairment. 40% of women in the world, I cannot hear. It is not selective. It's just the pitch. And some idiot is trying to criticize me and tell me that I can't call it what I need to call it, what I call it. The same person that thinks that if I say I'm a woman, that's valid. But I can't call it a hearing impairment, moron. You are not obligated to accept criticism regardless of source. You are obligated to look to the future and know that Jesus Christ is looking at you and graciously wants to count you worthy of honor in the kingdom. That is all. And everything else fades in comparison. We pray for this purpose, that God will count you worthy of your calling and that he will fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God called you to a vocation, called me to a vocation, a fulfilling, appropriate vocation or calling to faithfully endure and engage affliction and persecution. And we need to not misunderstand them. Right? Like the Thessalonians took their, the presence of affliction. We're going to talk about this next week. They took the presence of affliction in their lives to say, the world is ending. The world has been ending since Genesis 3. What we should be shocked with is that most of us have lived decades of our life without a single real affliction or persecution. That should scare us to death. That ain't normal. That's not normal. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. We have a, a vocation, an appropriate, fulfilling vocation that doesn't change. And we have the opportunity to be found worthy because we executed that and accomplished it. And to understand that vocation of living a life worthy of the kingdom now, Paul prays that God would honor and fulfill every desire that we have to accomplish that for goodness. And, and key here, the work of faith with power. Uh, scripture is very clear that something that is by faith is not by sight. Right? Somewhere? That faith, the need for faith will one day be eliminated in your life because it will have become sight. You, you are not going to be asked 
to believe something absence of physical evidence in front of you for eternity. Remember, though, the distinction. That's important that we understand that, that living our lives by faith is not by sight. Because if we can see why we got afflicted, then we're probably not being afflicted for good reasons. Right? If you can see the formula, don't make me go deep on this now, guys. Y'all are going to make me say things that most people think pastors shouldn't say. I'm going to say it about myself so you can't get mad at me. So there. Sometimes I'm stupid and I make bad decisions. Sometimes I'm stupid and make bad decisions. Don't ask Priscilla which ones they were. Sometimes I'm stupid. I make bad decisions. And so I can see I did that stupid thing. <laughs> oh, and I made that bad decision. Ooh, <laughs> and I suffered because of it. Whole churches do this. Whole nations do it. It's common in the world. That formula does not mean that you engage faithfully in your vocation. That means you've got the consequences of being stupid and making bad decisions. Well, I'm sorry, hypothetically. It means I, I got the consequences of being stupid and making bad decisions. That's what that means. So please don't assign the plethora of all of your afflictions to being counted worthy of the kingdom that is to come, because not all of them are like that. That's what it means. When we have the work of faith in power, it means that there is, there is no formula, there's no logical progression there's no Pythagorean theorem involved or any kind of science. It's its own religion here right now lately, huh? Scientific observation, a formula, there's nothing there. You simply have afflicted. Now you're getting it done. Now when you have faith, it's powerful. Now is where the counting worthy clock starts ticking. Nobody smile. It's like you guys don't want to suffer for no reason, no apparent reason. Because that's what I just said, right? I prefer that to being stupid and making bad decisions. I don't know. Maybe that takes a, you have to flip things on their ear a little bit to figure that out. I'd like evidence of growing in my life, <laughs> Right? If for decades I'm stupid and make bad decisions and I get afflictions because of it, and then all of a sudden I see no reason anymore, I know the reason. I know the reason. It's opportunity. We have the opportunity in those moments to be counted worthy. So then in our lives, we don't sit there and go, Lord, I'm not sure how much afflictions I can handle. We say, Jesus, bring me more glory. Bring me more. Because it glorifies him. Right? You're told there's a false modesty that floats around the church that you're not supposed to seek glory. That's not true. You're not supposed to seek your own glory. 
I'm not supposed to seek my own glory. And everyone's like, yeah, that's good. You're not very glorious. Thank you. You're supposed to seek Christ's glory, God's glory in your vocation and receive glory from Him on a gracious basis in the day to come. That's the formula. In that day, he will be glorified in his saints. You don't get to argue with the system, right? He's going to be glorified in his saints. Some people are foolish enough to say they don't want to get rewards. They don't want to be glorified. They don't want Jesus to be glorified in them. That's what they're saying when they say, I don't want rewards. I don't want a crown. I don't want honor in the kingdom. I just want to do my thing, and I just want to love Jesus, but I don't want to have to... Uh, that, that sounds stressful, man, to even think about that. The real question is, do you want Christ to be glorified in you or not? Do you want Christ to be glorified in you? Then you have to engage in the vocation. You have to. And look forward to the day when he'll be glorified in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity, for this purpose, for this vocation, this calling that we have. We thank you that it is an opportunity to see how the work of faith powerfully works, to understand the trajectory that we're on and what brings you glory. We love you. Uh, We could not have conceived of a plan like this, but we glory in it, and we love you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? We'll dismiss with a song. Father of mercy, darkness I will see I